Our scripture reading for this morning is Acts 4, verses 23 through 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Well, hey, good morning. Good to be with you, uh, whether you're here in person or online joining us. Uh, we are continuing our series, uh, our vision series, looking at our kind of three core things of gospel, community, and mission. Today we're talking about mission. It was a few years ago, I was reading through the Gospel of John, and I did a word search. I did a word search on the word sent, and what came up was astonishing to me. The word sent is used probably a little over 40 plus times in the Gospel of John, but 36 times it's used in relationship to Jesus. Let me give you a couple examples. John 4, 34, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Here's another one, John 5, 24. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. You know, um, reading over those 36 verses, it's, it's one of those things where almost every time Jesus talks about himself, he cannot but identify himself as someone who has been sent by the Father. There's a dynamic where he has a, it's almost like a self-understanding, a self-identification that he can't talk about himself apart from this identity that he's been sent. You know, it, it's, it's as simple as, you know, think about if you're, uh, you know, with your kids in the grocery store and you're like, hey, I'm going to send you to go get some sugar, right? Like, it's very clear. You have a clear purpose, a clear mission. And for Jesus, over and over and over again, his self-understanding, his identity was one that he had been sent on a mission. And what's really unique, at the very end of the Gospel of John, the 36th time, the last time he self-identifies as the one who has been sent, He's speaking to his disciples. He's risen. And he's speaking to them. And listen to what he says in John 20, 21. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. There's, there's something about this repetition. This 36 times I've been sent, I've been sent, I've been sent, I've been sent. And all of a sudden, the last time, Jesus speaking to his followers, he commissions them. 
that they've now been sent. In other words, if you have tasted, if you've experienced the redeeming love of God in Christ, as one author would put it this way, we are now to join him in extending his redeeming love to our friends, our cities, our world, until our animating hope becomes theirs. I don't know about you, but this brings up at least two problems for me, okay? Uh, The first is this. Do you really want to send me? Do you ever think that? Um, You might say something like this. You know what, I'm, I'm not very articulate. I don't know a lot. Really, you wanna, you wanna send me? Or perhaps you might say something like this. I don't have my life put together yet. Are you really sure you want me to bear witness? Or you might say something like, I'm, I'm pretty young. I mean, I'm only like 12 or 13. By the way, I'm not, I'm older. Um, you might say, I'm more on this side. I, you might say, I'm just too old. Or you might say, I'm just not, I mean, I'm just, I'm kind of unimportant. I don't have flashy gifts. It's interesting, um, there's a section in, when Paul is writing the church at Corinth, and uh, he says this, he says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is lowly and despised in the world. In other words, Paul doesn't say everybody in the church at Corinth is lowly or despised, but what he's saying is a large majority of them were, and he's beginning to say this, there's something about being weak and being vulnerable, being foolish and being lowly, that somehow actually qualifies you to actually show God's grace and power in a unique way. So, in other words, the words still stand there. You've been sent. But the other problem is this. When you think about bearing witness to the redeeming love of God in Christ to neighbors, friends, and family and coworkers, is that it is fraught with difficulties and potential opposition. I mean, let me just name a few. Think about this for a moment. In our polarizing, politically divided world of masks, anti-masks, cultural views on sexuality, gender, um, to move out to friends and neighbors, coworkers, to our city, and to speak and bear witness to a crucified and risen Lord Jesus? At a minimum, at a minimum, it has the possibility of being misunderstood. That's the minimum. Or how about this? In a pluralistic culture in which, in one sense, there is no ultimate truth, The claim that Jesus, the crucified one, the risen Lord, is the way, the truth, and the life, risks at a minimum, again, I'll say minimum, being viewed as naive. Or how about this? In our current cultural moment, when all the stats show the decline of Christianity in in, in America, in which there are now more Americans who identify as nuns, who are unaffiliated, 
been affiliated with any other th anything organized, in a time in which fewer than half of young adults, ages 18 to 30, are sure God exists, in, in a sense, those very stats seem to contest the idea that Jesus really is crucified and risen, and he really is the Lord. And even if you think that news is true, you might want to say, could we just like hang out in a Christian cul-de-sac and like hang out for a while until like things get a little bit better? And yet the, the words of Jesus are still there. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. There's a guy named Leslie Newbegin. He's a British missiologist. He puts it this way. There is no participation in Christ without participation in his mission to the world. Mission belongs to the very being of the church. So really the question today is not so much, if you're a Christian, are you sent? You are. I am. It's not even a question of whom you're sent to. The question is this. How are we to do it? Which is why we're in Acts 4 today. Think about it for a moment. A time in which a band of followers of Jesus, outnumbered and weak, they have no one in power on their side. They've been told to stop bearing witness to the redeeming love of God in Christ. And they gather. And the question is, what's going to happen to this small movement? Are they going to give up? Are they going to pack it in and say, it's just going to get too hard? At the very end, it's remarkable. The end of this, this section is they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. They had a lot more reasons to protest this calling. And yet something happened in this section. Something changed that enabled them actually to faithfully live out this identity of ones who have been sent. And that's the question today for us. If you're a follower of Jesus, what happened? And what might we learn from them that might speak to us in this present moment? So let me pray and we'll get in. Father, um, <laughs> pray now you would take us where we are and you would move us to where you want us to be. Take hearts that are apathetic and move them to zeal. Take hearts that are fearful and move them to a spot in which who you are and what you have done tips the scales. And you grant boldness. So we ask this all in your name. 
Amen. So uh, what happened? What, what changed? Um, look at verse 24. It's, um, it begins this way. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Let's stop right there. Um, this whole section is, is one thing. It's a prayer meeting. The opening verse and the closing verse are descriptions of like what happened before and what happened after, but everything in between is a prayer meeting. I don't want to make this too difficult today because it's not, but think about this for a moment. What they hold in that section is not a strategy meeting. Again, there's nothing wrong with strategy. They had clear strategy in the book of Acts. I can tell you that. They didn't do an equipping of how to share your faith. That's actually helpful. That's a good thing. But that's not what happened here. They didn't do a spiritual gifts assessment. Hey, who's got this gift or that gift? That's really helpful as well. But that's not what happened here. There's one thing that happens in these verses that changes it. They have a prayer meeting. And think for a moment what this implies. The precursor the bold witness of the redeeming love of God in Christ does not come from their strength. It does not come from their skill. It does not come from their ability. It does not come from their income. It begins with a vulnerable, small, dependent community who does one thing. They pray. And Luke, the author, he gives us some specifics on how they pray. It's really helpful. And basically, here's kind of the, the, the tandem of what we're going to see in this prayer. He is strong, and we are weak. If you want to learn anything from this passage, he is strong, and we are weak. Look at verses 24 through 28. I'm going to read them again here. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They begin by addressing this God as sovereign. It's actually the, the same word we get in the English in the original language that we get despot. It's, it's someone who has great power and control of circumstances. That's how the prayer opens. Think about this for a moment. For those who are weak, for those who do not have power, for those who are being opposed by others who have more power, it is something that these kinds of people need to know. They need to be reminded of who is really in charge of history. 
You know, um, they go on and they, they quote a psalm, Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is, is one in which the rulers of this world are trying to overthrow God and God actually installing his king. That's what Psalm 2 is about. And what those in this prayer meeting begin to talk about, they begin to apply this to Jesus. They say, actually, well, Jesus, remember last week, he's the one and true king. He's the long-awaited king. He's the one who God has placed on the throne. And in the section here, they begin to identify who the rulers were that were opposing God. They say, Herod, Pontius Pilate, they gathered together against your king, your holy servant, Jesus. But notice what they say next. They say, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Think about this for a moment. They're talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. They're talking about one of the most unjust executions ever happened in this world. It is. And, and they're saying, this God who made the world, he planned it. In other words, in the midst of evil, though God not responsible, standing behind it, yet nevertheless allowing it, actually in the midst of that, he actually carried out his purposes. He brought good out of evil. The point is this, that, that God is so powerful that even those who oppose him in the end only accomplish what he so desires. And here's the point. The point here, right here, is this, is that these weak, dependent people need to know that God has history well in his hands. He is in control. A few months ago, uh, we got a new dishwasher, and when I signed up for it, it said it would come with installation. And when I got it, the installer didn't show up. And so I called the place I ordered it from, and I was on the phone for about 70 minutes with a customer service representative. And she was very kind. And I explained the situation, and she's like, I'm so sorry. Um, I wish I could do something, but I can't. Let me, let me put you on hold, and let me go talk to someone who can. You know. And then she came back, and again, it was like, I'm sorry, I wish I could do something, but I can't, you know. You know, oftentimes, to be honest, this is functionally how I view God. He understands my predicament, he understands my situation, but functionally speaking, he just can't do anything about it. He doesn't have any power or control to do anything. But that's not the God who is revealed here, is it not, right? The precursor to bold witness is that this God is strong. That he has history well in his hands. And therefore, those who are bearing witness do not have to fear. You know, Jesus, one of the most jarring things he said in Matthew 10, 28, he said this, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul 
Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. I said this a moment ago, but these are, these are jarring words. But let me say, for Jesus, these are loving words. Notice how he juxtaposes two types of fear. Don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear the one who can cast soul and body into hell. Like he's trying to put your fear up against a couple places. And he's saying this, he does not want his followers to be mastered or controlled by the fear of man. These words are jarring because he wants to awaken to them the power of God. To be in awe of him who has control over your life, even down to the very hairs of your head. Let me ask you a moment. How is the fear of others controlling you? One of the things that, um, (laughs) in my profession, uh, there's always an awkward moment in which I meet someone, and after a while, um, they get to know me, and then I reveal to them that I'm a pastor, and after that moment, the, it just changes. You know what I mean? It's like sometimes they begin to like, oh, I'm so sorry I said that about five months ago. And I'm like, dude, you're fine. Don't worry about it. You know what I mean? Like, um, but uh, how about this for you? You know, do you ever fear that on Monday when your coworkers ask you what you did over the weekend, the one thing you don't want to say is, is where you were here, is, is whether or not you were at church? Because you're just not sure what that's going to do to the relationship. You're just not sure what that's going to do to how they view you. I kind of have a running joke when people move to Mass. I tell them, like, just so you know, like, it's, if you identify as a Republican, that's like the worst. But if you identify as a Christian, that's like second worst. You know what I mean? I mean if you're both, you might want to just be quiet for a while and just love them for a while, you know? And again, um, it's just a part of the dynamic of identifying with Christ, Think about that for a moment. Those moments in which you identify for who you are as a follower of Jesus, we're not in a situation where you're fearful they're going to impale you, right? But it will change their view of you, potentially. And here's, here's, here's the test. In those moments, in that fear, are you going to fear them? Or are you going to fear God? Are you going to be in awe of them? Or you're, are you going to be in awe of God? That's the test. The precursor to bold witness is a prayer to a God who is not aloof, weak, or foolish, but a God who can be trusted in every circumstance. How about this? Could you maybe trust God to hold your reputation? I mean, honestly. If you identify as a Christian, could you trust him to hold the reputation you have at work, among your neighbors, among your friends? This, this section reveals that God has human history, which includes your reputation and anything else you might lose, well in his hand. This prayer is not only marked by a stunning acknowledgement of who God is, 
but it's also marked by a stunning request. Verse 29, uh, look at what they say. This is the one request. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. The reason why that's fascinating is what they don't pray for. They don't pray for protection. Do you notice that? They don't pray for protection. They're weak. They don't know what they're going to lose. But they don't pray for protection. And again, I want to be clear. Like, it's, it's not wrong to pray for deliverance in situations. That's not wrong. But here, they don't pray for that. What do they pray for? They ask God to give them strength to speak his word with all boldness. They are so single-minded. They cannot get out of their heads that they have been sent. In a sense, they kind of throw their even well-being to, to, like, to the wind. We're not going to talk to God about that. Um, God, give us strength to speak. And the other thing that's really helpful about this is it reminds me that they're very ordinary people, right? Because to request that assumes that they're fearful. Like they're not taking these threats lightly. I think sometimes, and this is maybe just speaking about myself, but somehow I think that I need to summon the courage or I need to summon the strength or I need to summon the knowledge to share. And yet right here, we don't see a bunch of self-confident, stoic responses. We see a people who are weak and are willing to admit their weakness, willing to admit their fear. One of the most remarkable places where you see this and it's actually remarkable because of who asked for it, is the, is the Apostle Paul. Um, in Ephesians 6, listen for a moment of what he asks of a church to pray for him. In verses 19 and 20, he says this, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in change, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Think about this for a moment. <clears throat> There's actually no really argument here. This is the most effective, committed church planter the world has ever seen. Like, is there ever a moment where you thought maybe Paul could have said, like, I've got it figured out? I've kind of got this thing down. And here's the most effective, most able, most committed. And here he is saying, please pray for me. I need help to continue to speak as I ought with boldness. And here's the beautiful thing. 
from this passage is, is simply, is in one way, it's saying this, bearing witness to the redeeming love of God in Christ actually comes from acknowledging our inability, acknowledging our weakness. It just comes down to this, can, can, can you and I be weak? I mean, Redeemer City, we've been here for seven years almost in October. There's been a lot of great things that have happened. But I'll tell you this much, moving forward, we need to be weak. We are weak, and He is strong. And that means, as we see here, we walk out this mission on our knees. And look what happens. Look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, <clears throat> the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and committed to speak the word of God with boldness. They come to a God who is great and strong. And he answers. And he empowers them for mission with his Holy Spirit. And they continue to, to bear witness. <clears throat> this is many years ago, but um, there was a young woman in our city group. This is like back in the Vine days. Um, not Redeemer days, but she just moved to Madison, started her job at Epic, and she was just one of the most sweetest, like, women you would have ever met, you know. Um, she was one of those ones that brought baked goods quite often, which is always a favorite, and um, yet she was very quiet. You know, one of those people that, like, when you're doing discussion, you know, very rarely would share and, you know, we would talk about living on mission and living by faith and all these different things. I remember thinking, if there's anybody in this group who's like the least likely, you know what I mean, to live this out, it's got to be this person here, you know. Not in a judgy way, but just like, she's just so quiet. And one of the things I really appreciated was a couple years later, and again, this is like years of just, I'll just say this, this is... Growing and living on mission, it's not this like, I'm going to do it and like next day I got it. This is an ongoing process. But a couple years later, I'll never forget talking to her. And she had recently had a dinner with one of her coworkers. And they were both discussing the anxiety that, you know, kind of being a part of a software tech company like Epic provides and just the anxiety that it builds. And yet in the middle of that dinner, she began to talk about her faith in Christ and how the gospel was changing her in that moment. See, some of you, you think you're the least likely. And I want to tell you, do you really want to limit God's power? Right? 
Because here's the deal. If you even taste a bit of what Jesus has done, this rescue and repair, and how he welcomes you in and how he has pursued you, then the logical conclusion is that in one way or another, you taste and see how good he is and you want those around you to know it. So here's the challenge. Let me give three things. Firstly, live up. Can you and I be needy? Uh, I want to reiterate this. I've, I've realized over the years when oftentimes when I'm in the room, um, I'm usually the least accomplished person in that room. <laughs> Redeemer City um, is oftentimes filled with articulate, skilled, competent, oftentimes upwardly mobile individuals who through hard work, education, continue to excel. And I want to tell you there's nothing wrong with that. But I want to tell you that oftentimes it's in these circles that admitting you're weak, being prayerfully dependent, can feel a little bit like writing left-handed. If you're right-handed, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, right? I mean, I, if I don't have to do it, I don't want to do it. Why would I do that when I can just rely on myself? And yet the path forward is clear. Bearing witness to the redeeming love of Christ. It's not found in our strength. Let me call us to live in. Uh, this is not a solo project. This is prayerful dependence with others. Think about um, when Peter and John got released and came back, what did they do? They, they just got the band of people together. This is not Peter and John off by themselves. It was them gathering the community. Redeemer City, we, our primary pathway for discipleship and mission is through city groups. If you're not in one, encourage you to get in one. They start this week, but here's the question for each city group this week. How might your city group build rhythms of dependent prayer for bold witness in your lives? I want you to answer that as a group. I want you to come up with options in your group. And I want you to make a commitment of what that looks like. This is how we walk it out. We walk it out together. And then we live out. This is dynamic of just who's around us. I want to tell you real clear. To live on mission live out this identity of being a sent one, it's going to be frustrating. There are going to be moments you are going to feel like you should have gone somewhere else. There are going to be moments of you feeling insignificant and unimportant and not qualified. But let me tell you what, 
There is meaning in the monotony. There is meaning in duty. There's meaning in faithfulness, in showing up and showing up and showing up and loving and listening and prayerfully depending on the work of the Spirit. And as he opens doors, you speak. And you get a moment to shed to share the light of Christ in a dark world. And here's my hope. As we acknowledge that we are weak and he is strong, that we might be a community who are marked like Peter and John when they were told to shut up and stop speaking with threats. And their response was this. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we confess our need for you this morning. We are grateful that you have history well in your hand. We need not fear. And so, Lord, pray. Pray that you would make Redeemer City a place where we could not but speak of what we have seen and heard. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.